Let's turn now to Paul's second letter, Thessalonians, and chapter number 1, and we're going to read at verse 11. Second Thessalonians 1, and at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and to may fulfill every resolve for good and for every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this evening I want to commence a study of learning lessons from the prayers of Paul. And prayer, of course, is at uh, the very centre of the life of the people of God. The Catechism reminds us what prayer is. It's uh, an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with a confession of our sins and with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And when we think of prayer, it is, of course, directed to God. Uh, And we come to God with our prayers in our humility, we pray. And when we do pray, it is an intellectual exercise because we are engaging with the Word of God as well as with God. It is something emotional. And, of course, it is also something very spiritual. We have the spirit of prayer. And when I look at Paul's life and all of his letters, he is engaging with people. And in that way, reminding us that our prayers are not just for ourselves, but that we pray for others. And we look at this church in Thessalonica, uh, where Paul, uh, to whom Paul is writing, and a church that he himself came to plant. And he did so in the early year A.D. 50. And he comes to write the first letter to them at the end of that year. So they are still very much in the early stages of their Christian experience. Then he writes the second letter to them in the beginning of the following year. So within a year, he has been there for weeks planting the church. He writes to them nine months later, and then less than 12 months later, he writes the second letter. And he's doing so as somebody who has this people in his heart. And we see that from the very way in which he writes both of these letters. And the letters have different focus. They look at different things in the first letter that are challenging things going on with regard to their theology and with regard to to their development in this letter. They are struggling with affliction. They are uh, struggling with perhaps receiving false documents. uh, And they are struggling in uh, the way in which there are those who are idle in the community and in the church. So there are different problems being addressed by, by both letters, but they come from Paul who has a real interest in this church. And we want to look at the prayer that we have at verse number 11, and to look at that prayer in the context of what he says in his thanksgiving from verse number 3. And we want to think of the framework of grace and the focus of 
prayer. I want to think, first of all, of participation. Here is a church that he addresses as the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are already in the faith. They have responded to the gospel. We see that in the first letter, in the first chapter. The gospel came not in word only, but with power and in the Holy Spirit and with much conviction. There are people who have come to participate in the life of the kingdom of God and in the life of the Spirit of God. They are already in the kingdom. And in the thanksgiving that we have at verse number 3 and 4, we see that he wants to show their participation, first of all, in their personal development. It's wonderful to watch personal development. It's frustrating to see no development. The children of God come into the kingdom of God with the Spirit of God, and they are there to develop as the children of God. And when Paul is writing this letter and engaging with his, with, with his people, he gives thanks for the way in which they have developed within 12 months of coming to know the Lord Jesus. He says in verse number 3, We ought always to give thanks to you, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and because your love of everyone of you for one another is increasing. There is development in their faith. It is growing abundantly. The way in which he describes the growth is something like the, the powerful organic growth of a tree or a plant. We see it flourishing from year to year. It's planted in good soil. The, the, the gardener looks after it. And it grows up and it flourishes and we see its fruit as we see that in Psalm number 1. That's how he sees their faith. It is growing abundantly. It is putting out branches. It is showing leaves. It is showing the fruit of the kingdom of God. Their faith is growing abundantly. And along with that, their love of everyone for one another is increasing. There is that sense of relationship with each other as well as their relationship with the Lord Jesus and their faith. There is their love for one another. And that also is increasing. It is superabounding. It's the picture this time of of something that's diffusive. It's like the, the kind of flood that's irrigating the land. We have the energy of the organic growth. We have the impact of the water that that waters the the land to irrigate and to cause it to bring forth fruit. And he thinks of them and he's watching them from afar. He's writing from Corinth and he's looking back and he's hearing from Timothy and, and how thankful he is that they are so progressing in their faith. He is able to to measure where they are because he knows where they have come from. And in the first letter, he has has prayed for them. 
that, that the Lord would make them increase in love in chapter 3. He has prayed for them that God would supply what is lacking in their faith. And now he is taking the measure that the, the yardstick and he is compelled to give thanks to God for that personal development. And one needs to wonder tonight that God, who, who we can think of looking from afar in the sense that, that he is looking down upon us and watching where we have come from, where we have begun on our journey and where we are tonight, whether it's after 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or maybe even 30 years or maybe even more. Where have we reached considering where we have come from. And God is the person who will assess that for us. But we are compelled, when we hear Paul giving thanks for the Thessalonians, we are compelled to to think about ourselves, take the same measuring stick, and measure your own progress, and think about your faith, How much is it putting out its branches and your own love for other people, the love for one another? How much is it the case that it is watering the the ground of your own faith and your own spiritual life, but also watering the ground of the spiritual life of, of all those around? Thanks for their participation in the kingdom for their personal development. And along with that, their participation is also seen in their perseverance. What a great mark perseverance is. How sorrowful it is to see a child of God failing to persevere. The yardstick is the same. It's where we have come from and where we are tonight and who has disappeared from this journey of faith. Paul is persuaded to give thanks because they have persevered. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all your afflictions. And their perseverance is is evident in the context of two distinct things. And first of all, with regard to their suffering for their faith, we saw something of that in the morning in a a hostile environment, suffering for our faith. They have persevered. They have kept on going. They have kept on trusting. No matter what, they are still here. They are still participating in the life of the kingdom. And along with that, they are persevering in in their afflictions. That is, uh, the general things that that come into our lives. They might be serious illness. They might be a family crisis. can be so many different things. Afflictions, things that happen to us that affect us in our hearts, 
that touch the very foundation of our faith and that can cause us to to tremble in our faith. These afflictions he is persuaded to give thanks and to boast to other churches that they are steadfast, carrying on under. No matter how much the, the burden and the weight of the affliction, they continue to persevere and to follow their Saviour. And let us reflect on that and ask ourselves once more how much that describes ourselves. Says James, I will show you my faith by my works. The works that, that show that faith is continually active, that it is spreading out its branches and, and triumphing over everything that happens in life. Let us use the same yardstick and measure how much we're bearing up in the challenges of life, how much we are close to quitting, or how much our commitment to the Lord is being questioned by ourselves and being threatened because we are not able to cope with what is happening in life. The participation, the yardstick, and the measurement. Secondly, we see Paul thinking of preparation. They are participating in the life of the kingdom. He wants them to know that their ongoing participation is in itself evidence of God's preparation. And that's so encouraging. If I'm going through something and, and I'm saying, what on earth does this mean? What, what on earth am I to understand from this? Everything that's happening to me suggests to me that this can't be from God. But the encouragement comes in understanding that the very things that I think are negative are actually full of the positive love of God. And we see here in in verse number 5, all of your participation, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is evidence. The evidence that that faith itself is looking for. The evidence that faith needs. The assurance that comes from the evidence, from the plain indication and the clear proof that God is working. And where does the evidence come from? It's the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In our judgment... This should not happen. That should not happen. I shouldn't have experienced this. That's our judgment. It's not righteous, but it's often our personal assessment of where we are. But Paul wants them to to understand that what they're going through in the righteous judgment of God is actually part of their preparation. It's the, the work of God in their hearts and in their lives. 
Paul, in writing to Second Corinthians, speaks of, of a light affliction, which is but for a moment, working in us a, a far greater and eternal weight of glory. It's God's judgment. He's righteous. In all that he does, he has the end in view. And what is happening to you and to me tonight, what may happen tomorrow, what happened to us in our past, as the children of God, it's the righteous judgment of God. It's our preparation. And that preparation, so that we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. After all, our participation in the life of faith in this world has as its ultimate goal and view our possession of the kingdom of God. And God is working in this way in your life and mine so that we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Considered worthy not by ourselves. We're passive in this. We're not passive in in what we're going through. We're very much active in it because God is working in our whole beings, in our intellect, in, in in our emotions, in our affections, in our will. He's working in everything and we are working in that with him. But here, he is the one who is going to count as worthy at the end. He is the one that's going to place us in the balances and is going to put what worthiness means with regard to those who are going to possess the kingdom, place all of that on one side of the balances and then take all that is true of you and of me and of all of the children of God Take all that is true and place it on the other side. And what will the balances say? Will there be balance? This is what is required. This is what is found. And there we have those who are worthy to possess the kingdom of God. And tonight we we, we need to to reflect and to think about that and be encouraged by that. All that God puts us through in life is to bring up the weight of evidence and the weight of fruit and the weight of all that we are in our faith and in our love to bring all of that up so that when the day comes we will have the right to possess. This is evidence of the righteous Judgment of God. Peter, as we've seen, he he reflects on something similar. He speaks about the trial of our faith, the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold that is tried, may be found to, to the glory of God. It's that judgment of God that he places in our lot and in our life exactly what he knows we need not what he thinks we need but what he knows we need and that should be to our encouragement 
that whatever it is, when I hear my inner voice saying, that can't happen to me, that's not for me, I need to hear the alert that says, ah, but God, he's the righteous judge. And God is saying, yes, this is for me, and this is for you. The righteous judge, the God is saying, this is exactly what I need, and this is exactly what you need. The evidence, the encouragement. And surely that's an encouragement for all of us, because there can be so much discouragement to, to, to try and swamp us and overwhelm us and, and rob us of the assurance of our faith. But let the word of God speak. Let my faith lay hold of the promises. And let the life of faith grow and, and, and show that through all of these testings, as Abraham himself was, the father of the faithful, against hope, believed in hope, let's be encouraged that all that God is doing is for our preparation, for our good. And also to be, for them to be reminded that there is not only preparation for them, but there is preparation for all those who are their enemies. All those who are causing their suffering, that the day will come, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He brings their own suffering and their affliction into the context of being prepared for the second coming of Christ. Whom, says Peter, having not seen, we love. And though now we see him not, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory, waiting for the unveiling, waiting for the appearing of the unseen one, waiting for him to, to stand upon the earth. And when that moment comes, two things will happen. Those who afflict us, they're going to be judged and punished by God by God, in accordance with the way in which they have afflicted us, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And the repayment is nothing less than the, the vengeance of the flaming fire and being cast out from the presence of God. Our affliction is nothing compared to the affliction that, of those who afflict us will be in the great day of the appearing of the Son of God. And in their affliction, and in the moment of their affliction, to grant relief to you. To bring you to sit down in God's kingdom. And to breathe a, a sigh of relief. And to be thankful at last the storm is changed into a calm, relieving all of the tension, 
relieving all of the stress, relaxing from all of the strain, and giving us to find our peace in the kingdom of God. They shall rest from their labors, their works do follow them. Preparation. We are encouraged because all that God is doing is preparing us. And we are encouraged also that as he prepares judgment for those who afflict us, that he will give us at last to find a rest. The preparation the participation. And that leads us to Paul's prayer. He has told them what he thinks and what he knows God is doing. Now he takes them in his heart and he wants to tell them how he does pray for them. And when we come to his prayer, we see the content of his prayer. And we we see in the first petition, in verse number 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and to may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. He is praying for them that as they journey on and as they go towards the end, that at every step of the way, that God will make you worthy of his calling. What he has said is happening, and the purposes of God is exactly what he's praying for in his prayer. He understands what God has said he will do, and he's praying that God will do it. It's a simple connection, but it is an important one, and it shows us the theology of prayer. That we don't go blindfold into our prayers, but that our prayers are inspired by the promises of God, by the word of God, that they arise out of our everyday experience, and we pray in accordance with the promise of God. And so that for them, at every step of the way, God will make them worthy. They are not going to be worthy in themselves, but God is the one who works in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. He will make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. He will bring to fulfillment and to completion. It's a wonderful prayer. He is saying that every resolve that they have for good, for the good of the kingdom of God, for the good of the people of God, for the good of the church of Christ, every resolve for good, that God may fulfill that. And it reflects the way in which he understands their hearts because he knows his own heart. He understands that the people who participate in the life of the kingdom, that they are full of desires for good. 
And every day they arise as the people of God, in whom God is working and whom God is preparing. Every day they arise, there is the resolve for good. What today can I do for my Saviour? What today can I do for the family, for the children of God? What today can I do in the the service of the kingdom of Christ? There's that resolve for good. And he is praying that every day they have such resolutions that God will fulfill that. That he will bring it to fruition. So that it will not just be, be litter on the floor of their lives, but that it will be fruit and evidence in the journey that they do take. Don't we all need that prayer? Don't we all need God to help us to fulfill the things we want to do that we cannot do? The things that are good. They're good for ourselves. They're good for others. They're good for the kingdom of God. And so often we cannot do them. And to know that the people of God are praying that when we're failing and when we're about to fail, that there are petitions going up to heaven asking that what these people decide and resolve to do, that it will be fulfilled. The content of his prayer, his petition for them, and that that would be fulfilled by his power. There is no other way. We're not going to be able to do this with our own energy and with our own gifts and with our own power. It's by the grace of God alone. The grace that is sufficient for us. May we have that kind of prayer. May we have that kind of petition for each other and what a difference that will make as it made in the church of Thessalonica that a church that was progressing and that was developing and so that ultimately in the focus of his prayer that's his petition for them that God carry on working to will in you and to do of his good pleasure so that what does he want more than anything? That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. Nothing less. The ultimate goal of everything in this prayer is the glory of his Saviour. Yes, he wants to pray for them to help them, but he wants to pray for them to help them so that they will glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. And we know that from the likes of Philippians chapter 2, we know that God highly exalted his Son, gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of God the Father, the glory of Christ. The day will come, the day in which they will find their rest, 
that the day will come and they will share in the glory of Christ. And share as those who will be glorified in him, as we read in verse 12, that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. It's that marvellous relationship. Everything is reciprocal because they are in Christ and the glory of Christ shines through them. They are like that, that transparent vessel in whom the, the glory of, of Christ dwells. And in many ways, the, the glory of Christ is the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in the children of God and in that indwelling, in that kingdom of God and the great day of the spiritual kingdom when we will be raised up in glory to, to be with Christ forever. There, in that moment, glorified with him. Says Paul in Romans 8, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. The focus and the vision. And as John John Stott says with regard to this glory and speaking of the way in which this glory will take place, not among them as if they will be the theatre or stadium in which he appears, but rather in them, as if they will be a filament which itself glows with light and heat when the electric current passes through it. It's the power and the glory of Christ that, 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 that passes through and that, that is inherent in the sense of, of inheriting that glory of Christ. And standing in glory with them. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Paul's prayer. Thankful for their participation. Reminding them that it's all about God's preparation. And having this focus in view. That he prays for their ultimate glory. And that all that God is already doing. He will continue to do and will bring it to perfection and will bring them at last to be counted worthy in that great day of God's judgment in the balances once more. Here is what is required. Here is what I find in them to the glory of the great name of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be there together and may we share in that glory and what a wonderful rest that will be not where we lie asleep resting, but a rest where we'll be filled with uh, the, a sense of the need to worship the great God and Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, O Lord. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give thanks to you and we worship your name because of your work, because of your grace, because of the way in which It brings people into your kingdom because of the way in which it keeps them in your kingdom and prepares them for the full possession of the final and eternal kingdom of God. Bless your word to us tonight, we pray, that we may be on this journey together 
that we may expose ourselves to the measuring line of the gospel, that we may be inspired and encouraged as well as challenged by it, and may we live together so that we may be glorified together and stand around your throne with exceeding great joy and having hearts full of worship for you, for the Lamb that was slain, and for you as a God who sits upon your throne. Help us and bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.